Good morning. If we could please make our way to our seats. It's it's a joyous sight to see everyone fellowshipping and, and chatting with one another and laughing together and uh, getting to know others during this short break. Just being up here, I've got a bird's eye view, <laughs> literally, for me. Um, a great view to watch everybody, so just enjoying each other's company before we start the preaching of the word. For those of you who are guests here today, my name is John Reyes. I am one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and it is a delight and an honor to be here with you worshiping the risen Christ. Today I get the opportunity and the honor to introduce to you a young man whom, as Kim read this morning, my wife, uh, from Second Corinthians chapter 2, and the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said is the aroma of Christ. This guy smells like Jesus. As we are all called to smell like Jesus. He smells like Jesus. He loves Jesus. He loves his word. And he loves sound doctrine. And I love hanging out with Ethan Prouse. I've got to know Ethan uh, quite a bit over the past year. Uh, not too long ago, about a year and some months, he became a member at Christ Community, something like that. A couple of years ago, but Annie became a member last year, his wife, right? But even more so, they got to get married last year. And I got to attend their wedding, and it was a wonderful, wonderful event where uh, to watch these two uh, become one flesh. And they are a delight to have in our local church. They love serving uh, the Lord, and they love serving people. Uh, and so today, I get to introduce Ethan Prouse, who is a graduate of Lancaster Bible College, and I said it right, Lancaster. From Connecticut, we say Lancaster. But I had to learn over the years that it's Lancaster, just like it's not Reading Railroad. It's Reading Railroad. But all my life, I always said in Monopoly, I got Reading Railroad. Anyway, Ethan, would you come up here and give us the word of God today? Let's, let's, let's thank God for this man. morning church um once again good morning i just want to say before i get started thank you all so much for your prayers over this past week um the text that came in to my wife and i and even those of you on the way in this morning who said you know i've been praying for you this week brother that means so much to me i felt your prayers and you have a great part in this sermon and so i am excited to see how God used all of your prayers to accomplish the work that he is going to do in all of our hearts. So thank you all so much. And um, with that, let's get started. So we are in the middle of a three-part series on our church's vision statement, which is exalting, proclaiming, and enjoying Jesus Christ. So last week we got to hear Joshua bring the word, and what a what an awesome word that was with exalting Jesus Christ. Today is proclaiming Jesus Christ, and next week um, we'll hear Jason preach on enjoying Jesus Christ. And so with that, today the focus is proclaiming Jesus Christ. So let's get started. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And this morning we'll be reading verses 18 to 20. And so before I read it, I just want to remind us of what's happening leading up to this text here in Matthew 28. So the gospel of Matthew recounts for us 
the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself in human form, came to this earth, was born of the Virgin Mary, and he grew up as we all do. But one thing that he had different from all of us was that he never disobeyed God. He never sinned. He came on a rescue mission to save sinners. Now, maybe you remember the 12 boys and their coach from the, uh, the soccer team in Thailand that was recently rescued out of that cave, miraculously rescued from that cave about a month ago. And I remember watching a news segment during that time when they were rescued. And the news anchor said, he reported, it was a most unlikely rescue, but it is now mission accomplished. See, church, that is what Jesus did for us. In his rescue mission, it was the most unlikely rescue that we would be saved from all of our sin and all of our rebellion against God that every single one of us is guilty of. There was no hope for us escaping the cave of our sin on our own strength. It cost Jesus his very life, but as he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished, declaring salvation, mission accomplished for those who believe. It was a most unlikely rescue. But church, if you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, it is mission accomplished. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, guaranteeing final victory over death and granting eternal life to every single person on this earth who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. That is the gospel. And then to confirm that, he appeared to many people on earth before returning to heaven to, pre- to prepare a place for his followers. And these words in Matthew 28, he says the resurrected Jesus give these words to his disciples as parting words. They're the marching orders, if you will, for the followers of Jesus. And so in light of that awesome story that it is, let's read together the word of God, the inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word of Almighty God. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The title of the message this morning is The Greatness of Christ's Commission. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you indeed left your home in heaven to breathe the dust of earth, to live among us, to, to, to fulfill the law of God. You never once sinned, Jesus, and you went to the cross to pay for our sins. You rose from the dead, and you now have given these words to all of your disciples and to us as well. God, I thank you so much. You have not left us alone in our sin, but you have given us the incarnate word, Jesus, and you've given us the written word. I pray this morning as we learn from the written word that it would be a rich blessing and joy to our souls and that we would be able to be faithful with this task that you've given us. May we see Jesus and rejoice in him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So perhaps you are very familiar with this passage in Matthew 28. It's known as the Great Commission. And this is a uh, a fitting title for this passage. Indeed, it is a great commission that Jesus gives to his disciples. And if you are familiar with it, 
Some of you have probably heard it hundreds of times, and it's likely that you've heard many different interpretations surrounding it. And because there's so many interpretations about this passage, um, there, there can be some, some misconceptions, some controversy with it. And with all of these differences in opinion, many of these differences sadly are incomplete. And so if we fail to see this passage completely, we fail to be completely obedient to our Savior. And so my aim this morning is that all of us would see and be moved in our hearts by the fact that this command is fully and deeply personal to each and every one of us. And as we behold Jesus in this passage and see his awesomeness in it, then proclaiming Christ becomes a joyful act of obedience. Every Christian is called to obey all the commands of Scripture, including the Great Commission. And though this command was given to his first apostles immediately following his resurrection, notice that in the end he promises, I will be with you always to the end of the age. He's saying that this command is not just for you apostles, but it's for all of the disciple makers, all of my followers that will come after you as well. And so this morning, if you claim to be a Christian, to have repented of your sins and believe in Jesus as Savior, then you are called to the Great Commission. You are called to the Great Commission just as much as our dear friends, Daniel and Caitlin Crocker, who recently left to go to the mission field. You are called to the Great Commission. All Christians are called to the Great Commission. Knowing that, I like to imagine that all of us are right there sitting at the feet of Jesus as he give these commands to his disciples. I like to imagine that we're all there hearing him give us these marching orders. And so now as I read this text again, even if you've heard it a hundred times before, may it sink deeply into your heart as you consider it anew this morning. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice as we look at these texts how Jesus does not start with go make disciples. That's not his first words. No, he doesn't start with the command, but rather he starts with a promise and he ends it with another promise. You see, this passage is organized kind of like a sandwich. And now I don't know about you, but I love a good spicy deluxe from Chick-fil-A. I know. I know it's Sunday. Sorry to tempt you on a Sunday. (laughs) Now, it would be really hard to eat that spicy deluxe from Chick-fil-A. If it didn't have that piece of bread on other, on the either side to keep everything together, it'd probably be really messy and it wouldn't be all that enjoyable. Think about it. You have that stain of the Chick-fil-A sauce on your lap. Your lettuce would be all over the table. Half the patty would be on the floor. And, uh, you know, this passage is, it, it's just like that sandwich. The two promises of Jesus that surround the command are like the two, the two pieces of bread that surround that Chick-fil-A spicy deluxe. The two promises of Jesus hold this command together and really they make it enjoyable for us. Church, here's the big truth that I want you to see from this passage. Christ's promise to us motivates and sustains our proclamation of him. 
Christ's promise to us motivates and sustains our proclamation of him. His promise is both what motivates it, what drives it, what initiates our proclaiming him. And his promise is what keeps us safe. It's what guards our hearts. It's what keeps us in the fight when the, tight, when the fight gets tough. Christ's promise to us motivates and sustains our proclamation of him. See, Jesus isn't simply saying, I've done all of this for you. And now because I've done it all for you, you owe me. Go make it up to me by telling people about me. This command is not meant to be a burden to us, church. But how often do we take it as one? It is hard to proclaim Christ. It is a fearful thing to stand for Jesus when it's not popular. When you feel like you're the only Christian in your school, in your family, in your workplace. I know it's hard. I've experienced it. And when we fail to proclaim Christ, we often feel guilty for doing so. A few years ago, my family took a vacation to Toronto, Canada, and we, we had a great time. Um, and I remember one time, one, one moment in that city when I really felt the Holy Spirit urging me to go and just start a conversation with these two guys specifically who are in the city and tell, tell, tell them about Jesus. Have you ever felt like that? My guess is that you have. You felt the nudge from the Holy Spirit to go and tell someone about Jesus. We see in that moment, that day, I didn't do it. And I felt guilty for it. Do you feel guilty when you miss opportunities to share Jesus with people? You see, Jesus never intended for us to feel guilty about this great commission. No, and if we left proclaiming Christ that simply go make disciples without the promises of Jesus, if all we had was the command with no promise, then we have every right to feel guilty because guess what? It would just be something to add to another list of rules, not something to rejoice in. Without the promises of God, we would have no ability to obey this command because in and of ourselves, we are powerless to obey God without the promises that he gives us. You see, the good news of Jesus is wrapped up in these promises of grace. And when we see that, proclamation becomes a joy-filled adventure and not a guilt-ridden drudgery. The good news of Jesus is wrapped up in these promises of grace. And when we see that, proclamation becomes a joy-filled adventure and not a guilt-ridden drudgery. In the acknowledgement section of his book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper states at the end, Thank you most of all, dear Jesus, that you have buttressed the command with the double promise. Our dear Jesus has indeed buttressed, supported, and reinforced the command, therefore showing us that his promise to us both motivates and sustains our proclamation of him. We don't have to muster up the motivation to proclaim Christ in ourselves, nor do we have to go at it alone. And with that, we'll look at three points together from this text. Point number one will be the promise that motivates, subtitled the promise of power. Point number two will be the proclamation of Christ. And point number three will be the promise that sustains, which is the promise of presence. Point number one, the promise that motivates, the promise of power. There is a good and glorious pattern in scripture, and many of you know this, in which a command is preceded by a gospel truth. Before God tells us what to do, he reminds us of what he's done for us. 
And what a gift of grace this is that we don't need to find or muster up the motivation to obey on our own terms. No, God reminds us of what we need to know in order to faithfully and fully obey him. Think of the book of Galatians from which we'll have the joy of hearing our brother Jason preach to us next week. And in that letter, Paul writes this in chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That's a gospel truth. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's the gospel command. The gospel truth comes before the gospel command. That's the same thing here in the Great Commission. And this is a pattern because God knows that in our sinful fallenness, the indwelling sin that remains in us, we are prone to forget the gospel truth. And so here again in the Great Commission, Jesus approaches the disciples and the very first thing he says to them is a reminder of a glorious gospel truth. This is, says Jesus, to be the engine that drives our proclamation of Christ. And take notice to what this gospel promise is. In verse 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, the word authority here is used elsewhere in the book of Matthew, giving us insight into exactly what this authority is. It is the authority to teach and interpret the scriptures, Matthew 7, 29. It is the authority to forgive sins, Matthew 9, 6. It is the authority to heal and cast out demons, Matthew 10, 1, to name just a few. And we also think of his countless miracles in which he raises the dead, gives sight to the blind, and cleanses the leper. He has the authority over all of this because he made it. Remember, church, all means all. And when he says that it is all authority in heaven and on earth, he is intending for us to be reminded that he, King Jesus, has all power over all of creation, period. He has numbered the very hairs on the heads of all 7.6 billion people on earth. He knows the amount of cells in all of our bodies. He formed all of creation by his very word. He paints the beautiful sunrises that we see. He lifted the majestic mountains that we behold. He knows the depths of every ocean. He is the author of all of history. And as Hebrews 1, 3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper put it this way. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And church, that includes each and every one of us. And now let us not miss this, that Jesus intends for us to be reminded as we proclaim him that this absolute authority has been given to him. Which leaves us asking the question, well, who was it that gave it to him? As Ephesians 1.22 says, he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet. This power has been given to Christ Jesus by God the Father. And so church, the false notion that Jesus is somehow of secondary importance to God the Father is to be absolutely rejected. The thought that the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection should be less of a limelight in our hearts and in the life of our local church must be finally denied. Jesus is God, and all authority and power has been given to him by God the Father. And therefore, the explicit gospel of Jesus Christ must remain of unprecedented and unparalleled importance, both in our hearts and in the life of our church.
I know you might think, yes, all this is true, but what does it have to do with proclaiming Christ? Why is this the motivation that Jesus gives us to proclaim him? Ultimately, Jesus intends to remind us that his authority, all of this authority that's been given to him, is ultimately that over the salvation of sinners. Remember, God is the one who gave, us, who gave him this authority. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And again in Isaiah 53 verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Here's the point. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he declared the salvation of all who believe to be a done deal. This act of his death on the cross was a declaration of God giving him all authority in heaven and on earth and ultimately the authority to save sinners from the wrath to come. Maybe you're in this room this morning, you've never turned away from your sin and trusted in Jesus for salvation. Please, friend, do not delay any longer. Even now, turn toward Christ in faith and repentance in your heart. And that declaration of it is finished will be true for you. And every sin of yours will be washed away. And you'll be with Jesus in heaven someday. And if you are a Christian here this morning, oh, dear brother and sister, would you take a moment to just think on your own redemption? Think on the moment when God broke through your hard heart and irresistibly drew you to repentance and faith. For those of you that can't point to one specific moment in time that you were saved, but you can say confidently, I have faith in Christ alone. Think back to all that God has brought you from and sanctified in you. If you are a Christian in this room, it is because God put Christ forward as a sacrifice for all of your sin past, present, and future, thoughts, words, and deeds, and chose you before the foundation of the world to be his son or his daughter. You are his because he gave all authority to Jesus to conquer your sin and the sins of all who believe in his death on the cross. Because no man could get to God on his own due to sin, it took the God-man, Jesus Christ, to accomplish our redemption. And because God the Father gave all authority to the God-man, all men who have trusted in this authority to solve their sin problem stand saved. This authority is the promise that motivates because we know that as we proclaim Christ, we are not out there trying to save sinners on our own authority. In and of ourselves, that would be utterly futile. It would be impossible. It's not our job to save sinners. It's God's job, just like it was his job to save you. And we are simply called to proclaim with boldness that this work of redemption is finally finished for all who believe. It's mission accomplished. Under that authority of King Jesus, we go and proclaim Christ. This done deal gospel truth is what motivates us to obey the command to proclaim Christ. Now, under this authority, let us be freshly motivated as we move to point two, the proclamation of Christ. And now, as we hear the command again in light of the promise, let us be freshly motivated to action by the authority of Christ. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Notice, first of all, how Jesus says, therefore, in this command. Remember that therefore is often used in Scripture to point back and draw attention to what comes before it. And so once again here, Jesus is reminding his followers that his power and the fact that the Father has given it to him through the gospel is to be the motivation that we obey the command that comes next. It can be likened to a king sending out messengers with the task of declaring the king's authority. As the messengers of King Jesus, we go solely on the basis of his authority. Therefore, the command is what he tells us to do with that authority. It's as if he's saying, I have the power now motivated by my power. Go proclaim me. Recall how I mentioned earlier that there are many misconceptions surrounding that verse. And many times these misconceptions come from a misinterpretation in verse 19 which is the command of the Great Commission. And so digging into the, into the Greek of this verse helps us to understand it more fully and therefore to be more accurately and completely obedient to our Savior. Now in this next section, I have included a good deal of Greek language aspects, but it's for good reason. Uh, it's it's kind of like if, if you're watching something from a high-def television, and I'm sure you Eagles fans out there, you're grateful that you got the opportunity to watch the Eagles win the Super Bowl back in February. And uh, those of you who watched on an HDTV, I'm sure you would say every penny that you, pay, uh, you paid to watch the Eagles beat the Patriots was totally worth it. And, uh, you know, I, I can relate because I'm a Patriots fan, so I've experienced that plenty of times. <laughs> uh, in, all, in all seriousness, though, your team... Great game, and uh, you, you guys won it fair and square. We'll, we'll see how it goes this year. Um, but, uh, but, but just as it's worth every penny for that HDTV, it's worth every ounce of attention that you will put to this next part to understand the Greek here, and you'll see how it's totally worth it. So let's dig in. Before we do, let me just read the command one more time. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, the first thing from the Greek to note in this text is that there is a bright, shining spotlight on the word for make disciples. So in the Greek language, different words, um, different verbs, which are action words, have different endings to convey different forms. There's different endings to show that an action happened in the past, it's happening in the present, or it's going to happen in the future. And so you might be surprised to find that the word for make disciples here in this verse is the only word in the verse that's constructed as a command in Greek. This word for make disciples is the only word that in Greek as, is constructed as a command. As you look at the text, being the good Bereans that you are, you might be thinking, well, Go sure seems like a command to me. We'll get to that in just a bit. But for now, it's paramount to recognize that there is intense focus, like I said, a bright, shining spotlight on the word for make disciples. And so because of that, it is the real meat of the Great Commission. It's like that chicken on the spicy deluxe from Chick-fil-A, if you will. In fact, we see that make disciples in English 
is actually, um, what we see as two words, make disciples in English, is actually just one word in the Greek. And now the word in the Greek is mathetusate. Mathetusate. The only reason I tell you that is because it's a command form of the word mathetes, which maybe some of you have heard that word. It means disciple. It's a command form of the word disciple. We can think of, of, of a devoted follower. And so what the author did here is he took the word disciple, which is clearly not a command, and he turned it into a command. It's actually the only time in the entire Bible that this word, mathetusate, appears in the entire Bible. It's as if he's saying, disciple-lies the nations. Disciple-lies the nations. Imagine that someone was commanding you to go to another culture and teach them about the game of American football. Now, in order to, in order to command you as clearly as they possibly could, they might say, go footballize those people. Go footballize them. Now, if someone were to tell me to go footballize people, I'd be thinking about doing everything that I possibly could to get them engrossed in football. Think about it. We need to teach them all the rules, the scoring system, the penalties, how many players are on the field, the strategy, not to mention what teams to root for, like the Patriots. But but seriously, if I was told to go footballize people, and if you were told to go footballize people, you would go with a one-tracked mind. Get those people engrossed in football. That's essentially what Jesus' command is here. It can't be stated any more clearly. Disciple lies. Go get the nations engrossed in Jesus and make them fully devoted followers of him. You see, in proclaiming Christ, this is the single highest priority. Get the nations engrossed in King Jesus Christ. And as I stated a moment ago, we might think when we look at this verse, In the English, well, go surely seems like a command. We might be surprised to find out that the words for go, baptizing, and teaching to obey actually have the same ending in Greek. Go, baptizing, teaching to obey, those three words in English all have the same ending in Greek. And the ending is the idea of a continuous action. I have a friend from Ghana, and uh, he, he often says to me, be praying for us. That's the idea here. Be continually doing these things. And so because of this reality, some well-meaning Christians have been led to believe that what this passage is really conveying is going, make disciples, or as you go, make disciples. Therefore, they conclude this is a lifestyle command, meaning as you go, as you live your life with your job, your family, your home, basically however you want to live, you know, your hobbies and such. Just do everything that you want to do, live your life as you would, and make disciples along the way. And there might be an element of truth to that, a small element. But the problem with this mentality is that it can lead us to a perspective of, I'm just going to live my life the way I want and be a Christian. People will see my lifestyle and know why and want to know why I'm different, and they'll want that too. I'll do what I want with my life, and I'll make disciples along the way. Maybe you've heard people say that, or you've, if, if you look inside your heart, you'd say, man, I'm, I'm guilty of that mentality. The problem with that mentality is that 
people who have that mentality don't want to sacrifice for Jesus. See, this mentality says, I'm going to make my own decisions about who I'll live, or about how I'll live, who I'll marry, where I'll go to college, what kind of job I'll have, what church I'll attend, what kind of house I'll buy, where I'll live. The list goes on and on. And so making disciples, it's, it's just a part of my journey. It's another one of the thousands of priorities that I have, rather than being the foremost priority that drives all of those other choices. You see, making disciples isn't meant to be another one of our thousands of priorities, but it's to be the singular engine that drives the rest of our priorities. Making disciples is not to be a choice that we make of a list of thousands of other choices that we make with our lives. No, it is to be the singular engine that drives our choices. The reason the word go is translated as a command is that the text implies that in this word, in order to make disciples, going is absolutely necessary. When this word going or go is paired with the command, it creates an unbreakable chain between itself and the command disciplize that keeps the focus on the command disciplize with going being an absolutely necessary part of disciplizing. The point here is that in order to make disciples, you must go to people with the intent of proclaiming Christ to them. Or as one Christian put it, Christianity is a go and tell faith, not come and see. So let me ask you, Christian, is your Christianity a go and tell faith? Where in your life are you currently going with the purpose of disciplizing people, of proclaiming Christ to them? When you go to work, when you go to school, when you go to the football field or another sports team that you might be a part of, when you go to the community or maybe it's your kids' drama programs, wherever it is that you go, are you going with the purpose of making disciples there? In order to make disciples, we must go to people with the intention of proclaiming Christ to them. And next, the word all nations tells us who we are to disciplize. And so if disciplize is the what of the Great Commission, then all nations is the who. Now, the word nations here does not refer to geopolitical countries like Croatia, India, Somalia, and Thailand. No, rather, nations refers to people groups, meaning groups of people with a shared culture. There are thousands of them in the world. And we see the reality of the Great Commission accomplished in Revelation 7, 9, when the Apostle John records for us, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. No, there are people there from every nation on the earth. Christian, one day... You will be among that multitude because someone obeyed the great commission and proclaimed Christ to you. And so I ask you, who will be there because of your obedience to the great commission? It might be hard to believe here where we have a church building on basically every street corner, but 
the reality of Revelation 7 with every people group represented in heaven is far from being accomplished. In March of 2014, I was able to travel on a short-term mission trip to the country of Macedonia. And when I was there, I went with, with my team to a city with tens of thousands of people and only a handful of Christians in this city. And all of these Christians were implanted missionaries. The rest were Muslims. It was a place that was so spiritually dark that the darkness could literally be felt. We drove through this city and we could hear the Muslim prayer call to prayer bellowing from the mosques. I looked into the eyes of individuals as we were driving through the street and I was gripped by the reality that all of these people were destined for hell. And we progressed to a nearby mountain to look over the city and I cannot put into words for you the burden that was upon my heart as I looked out and beheld thousands of homes, each with families and individuals, men, women, children with stories and goals and dreams just like us. None of them, none of them had a saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the question kept playing over and over in my mind and I, I believe that it was from the Holy Spirit. All these people are lost and what are we doing about it? This question is a reality for each of us in this room to consider deeply for ourselves. If we take the gospel seriously, we, make ta- we must take this seriously. All these people are lost. And what are we doing about it? You see, out of the world's population of about 7.6 billion people, there is an estimated 3 billion 144 million 754,000 unreached people among 7,086 people groups. That's good for about 41% of the world's population. All of these people, 41% of the world's population are lost without the gospel. And Christian, what are you doing about it? How does this reality affect your prayer life? How does it affect your giving? How does it affect what you teach your children and what you prioritize in your home? According to Jesus, because all authority to forgive sin has been given to him, remember, all of these people groups will be represented in heaven. You can count on that. It's the word of God. And now this applies not just to the nations, but to our neighborhoods as well. Friends, there are unsaved people among us. We must take the gospel, yes, to the nations, but we must also not neglect the very people nearest to us. This includes that liberal churchgoer that lives next door. This includes that Muslim that owns the gas station down the street. That good guy moralist who sits next to you at work. And that family member who's tried the church thing, but long since has left the faith altogether. There are unsaved people among us, but that reality does not excuse us from taking the gospel to the nations. Rather, we must see that God's heart is for both neighborhoods 
and nations. And if we are to be completely obedient to the great commission, then our hearts must also be for both neighborhoods and nations as well. May each of us not only proclaim Christ to those nearest to us, but may we also care about and pray for those three billion plus unreached people and seriously consider how God might have us be involved in the task of reaching them. And church, you do this well. Be encouraged. Many of you have been giving and praying faithfully for the Crockers and for, and for the Vuceniviches. And many of you go to the streets of Reading and to your communities with the gospel on a regular basis. Be encouraged, church. But let us not sit back and stop there. Let us not be content there. May each and every one of us be freshly motivated and increase in our passion for the gospel's advance among both neighborhoods and nations. And so if disciplize is the what's of the Great Commission, and all peoples or all nations is the who, then baptizing and teaching to obey is the how. Disciplize is the what, all peoples is the who, and baptizing and teaching to obey is the how. And in these two words, baptizing and teaching to obey, baptizing is the idea of preaching Christ to people so that they repent of their sins and turn in faith toward Jesus. And when they repent and believe, teaching to obey is the idea of helping them to grow in Christ, to learn what it means to follow him, to teach them how to pray, teach them how to read the Bible, teach them how to trust God. We must teach them to obey all of what he has commanded, and that includes being a disciple that makes more disciples. See, the Great Commission implies that being a disciple means that you will make more disciples. That's in the Great Commission. That's the implication here. And church, disciplizing people is not just wearing a Christian t-shirt or standing on and preaching on the street corner or playing Christian music at the office or carrying a Bible with your books at school, putting a Christian fish on your car, not using language that you know you shouldn't use when everyone else is. Don't get me wrong. Those are all good things. They are, and we should do them. Thanks, Mark. Church, maybe you have a phone call or a message to send like I do when you leave here this morning. Baptizing and teaching to obey. That's the Great Commission. And church, this command to discipleize all people is monumental. It is weighty and it's hard. I know it's hard. But under the authority of King Jesus to motivate us, we also have the presence of King Jesus to sustain us. Which brings us to the third and final point. The promise that sustains, which is the promise of presence. And so, let us read again at the end of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And now in this small sentence, there are three strategies used in Greek to reassure us of the fact that Christ promises his sure presence with 
us as we go about disciplizing the nations. And as you will see, this three-pronged approach in the Greek is grounds for unshakable confidence in Christ sustaining us. So first of all, notice that the word behold is used here. Now this is meant to draw our attention to what immediately comes after it. It's like there's a neon sign pointing to what's ahead. It's as if Jesus is saying, what I'm about to say is of utmost importance. Pay attention to it. You see, this word assures us that this final promise of Jesus isn't just some add-on. It's not, oh yeah, by the way, as you do this, I'll be with you. I'm here if you need anything. No, it's meant to draw our gaze firmly upon the reality of this promise that he gives. He will be with us. Secondly, in the Greek language, there's simply one word for I am. It's just one word. It's different from English. You see, in English, we can't just say am. We can't just say tomorrow, am going to work. Obviously, that doesn't make any sense. No, but we we need to put I in front of it in order for it to make sense. We need to say tomorrow, I am going to work. But in Greek, they don't have to do that. There's just one word for am, or for I am. So they could say tomorrow, am going to work, and it would mean tomorrow, I am going to work. And there's countless examples in Scripture where this word, this one word for I am is used on its own. However, there are times in Greek where the word I is placed with the word I am, two words, I, I am, to draw emphasis upon the I, the one who's speaking. It's as if the speaker says, I, I am. That's the case here. Jesus not only says, I am with you. He says, behold, pay attention to this. I, I am with you. But that's not all. Finally, in the Greek language, the order of words in a sentence can be changed around to draw emphasis upon different things. It doesn't necessarily need to be that the subject of the sentence is the first word of the sentence. So in Greek, a sentence could read, if we were to translate it literally, went I to work yesterday. Again, makes no sense in English, but in Greek it works. Because we have to bring the I, which is the subject in English, to the beginning of the sentence and say, I went to work yesterday. But in Greek, at times, they do bring the subject to the beginning of the sentence in order to draw further emphasis upon the I and say, I went to work yesterday. And so the idea in that sentence in Greek is, I, not you or someone else, I went to work yesterday. Guess what? In this passage, in Greek, the I of Jesus' promise that, remember, it doesn't even need to be there for the sentence to make sense grammatically. The I is brought to the very beginning of the sentence after the neon sign behold and so what jesus is saying is behold pay attention to this i am with you this three-pronged language strategy in the greek is the strongest possible way that jesus can assure his followers that he himself is with them as they disciplize the nations. It's as if he's saying, I, I, I am with you. I, the ancient of days who descended from heaven to be born as a baby, am with you. 
I, the great physician who worked countless miracles on earth, am with you. I, the suffering servant who was brutally killed for your sins, am with you. I, the conquering king who rose victoriously from the dead, am with you. I, who am returning to the Father, but will one day come to wipe away every tear from your eyes, am with you. As Colossians 1, 15 to 20 reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for in him. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is with us. He is with us. He is with us. And believer, if you are in Christ, he will never, ever, ever leave you. As you go and discipleize the nations. I, I, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Till the day that I return. Oh, saint, if you feel that God is distant right now, hear these words. Jesus himself is with you. He will never leave you. To quote my good friend Joshua Sarita, don't allow the thought of God feeling distant, the feeling of distance, drown out the biblical fact of his presence. May this promise be a sure and steady anchor that sustains your weary heart. And church, if you're like me, you probably at times wrestle with doubt. You hear me relaying all these biblical facts and you think to yourself, yes, but at times I am plagued. I'm crippled by my doubts. And I don't feel close to God. How can I possibly try to tell people about him when I don't even feel like I have confidence in him for myself? I'm definitely guilty of that. Christian believer in Jesus, may you rest assured in the truth That his presence with us, his promise of his presence with us, is directly and unshakably tied to our proclamation of him. Do you want to feel closer to God right now? Then go make disciples. It's that simple. Please do not buy into the lie that you cannot preach Christ when you don't feel close to him. The objective reality of the gospel is true regardless of your feelings. And you can proclaim him with confidence regardless of how you personally feel. Jesus promised that he himself will be with you as you do so. And so if you desire to be closer to Jesus in your life, then go discipleize and watch your confidence and your experience of his empowering grow. I have experienced that myself. At times when I struggle and when I wrestle with doubt and I don't feel him close. Witnessing to others, telling others about Jesus grows your faith in the gospel, grows your confidence in the gospel, and grows your intimacy with Christ. He's promised that you can count on it. 
This sure promise of his unfailing presence is the promise that sustains us as we go and make disciples. So brothers and sisters, making disciples is hard. It's uncomfortable. Sometimes we don't know exactly what to say or how to do it, but rest assured, God cares more about people's salvation and growth in Christ than you do. And he's faithful to see to it that his own will be saved. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, would you along with me look to Christ anew this morning and obey the Great Commission? See, Christ's promise of power to motivate us is with us. And his promise of presence to sustain us is with us. And so may we go and proclaim Christ with confidence and great joy, knowing that God himself has the power to conquer sin. And he is with us to the very end. Worship team, would you come forward? Knowing this, brothers and sisters, may we go and give our money for the gospel's advance among the three billion plus unreached peoples on earth. May each of us seriously, seriously consider if God might be calling us to go to them ourselves. May we give of our time and pray specifically for the gospel's advance among the nations. May you teach your children about this missionary God who loves to save sinners and pray that he would raise them up to go as witnesses to the nations. And church, may we go faithfully to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, to our communities, to our kitchen tables, and to our own hearts, proclaiming Christ Jesus and him crucified and disciplizing all people for the glory of our awesome God. And don't forget, Christ himself, I, I, I am with you to sustain you to the very end. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that when you gave us these marching orders, you gave them to you gave it to us with a promise. The promise that all authority has been given to you, that we go under that authority, the promise that you yourself will be with us, you've proved it even through the language. That we are not alone as we seek to make disciples of the 3 billion plus unreached and the unsaved among us. We are not alone. You are with us, and your authority will accomplish. God, I pray that you would give us fresh faith in you, fresh obedience in your great commission to be faithful, to let this be the engine that drives our lives. And Lord, I pray that as you're doing work right now, even on our hearts, pointing out specific ways through your spirit that we can be obedient. Lord, do that. And as we do, I pray that someday when we see that reality of of Revelation 7 fulfilled in heaven, that we would be able to look back and see some who are there because of our obedience to your word this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are with us and that you will never leave us and that you will never let us go. And so it's with great confidence and joy that we pray these things in the name of you, our mighty, awesome, glorious Savior. Amen.
John 17 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave to me. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine is yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with you, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them have been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves church go therefore and make disciples and Behold, I am with you to the very end. Amen, church.